Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, bringing you everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and helping you make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All that brought to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues, as well as trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment. And welcome to this week's podcast, pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday evening, February 22nd, 2017. First item we're going to talk about tonight follows up on an item that uh, I brought to you on a previous week's podcast where we were talking about headline stress. Remember that where a, uh, a therapist wrote about how he was seeing in the couples that he was treating for couples counseling uh, that uh, issues that are so polarizing in this presidential campaign and election and the issues that have come up since then are uh, causing a lot of stress on the couples that he was treating. So I found this other article, and this uh, is in the Washington Post news magazine that comes with that newspaper, and it's uh, also written by someone who is a psychologist. Well, um, let me just read the article for you, and uh, I think there are some very interesting points about the level of stress that uh, the political discourse uh, that's going on in this country is causing. We're a nation of people already wound pretty tight, but right now we're more stressed out than we've been in the past decade, according to a new survey. The American Psychological Association, uh, which, by the way, is the psychologist's national professional organization, polls Americans about their stress every year, and it's common for many of those polled to report anxiety around personal life issues like work and money. This time, however, people are also citing politics as a serious stressor in their lives. Last year, the American Psychological Association, which represents psychologists across the country, heard from its members that their patients were experiencing high levels of anxiety in the lead-up to the presidential election. Since November, those emotions haven't let up. They've actually gotten worse with political talk consuming therapy sessions. Muslim Americans, immigrants, and victims of sexual trauma are especially prone to greater stress 
since the election shouldn't need to be explained but of course uh, with restrictions on immigration from Muslim countries uh, movements to restrict immigration build barriers um, and very coarse discourse about uh, sexual attitudes, attitudes towards women it's not hard to see why those groups are especially more prone to stress also mental health specialists who work in veterans affairs hospitals have reported their patients have made comments such as quote this isn't what I risked my life for unquote that according to Vale Wright a licensed psychologist and member of the American Psychological Association's Stress in America team. Because so many of its members were reporting election-related stress, the American Psychological Association added questions about politics to its annual survey back in August. When the negative feelings didn't ease up, the American Psychological Association did another survey in January to capture stress levels post-election. In August, 71% of Americans reported feeling a physical or emotional symptom of stress at least one day that month. In January, 80% had symptoms such as tension, headaches, or feeling overwhelmed or depressed. Now, let me just say here, granted, a lot of other things could have happened to people between August and January besides the election. Uh, now, the survey released this past Wednesday, uh, conducted by a Harris poll, found that 66% of Americans reported stress about the future of the country, 57% about the current political climate and 49% about the election income. That last statistic about what you would expect given the results of the election. Minority groups, millennials, those living in urban areas, and those with a college education had higher levels of stress about the election, which is unsurprising since those demographics tend to lean left. The fact that two-thirds of Americans are saying the future of the nation is causing them stress is a startling number, according to Dr. Wright. While Democrats surveyed were overwhelmingly more stressed about the election outcome than Republicans, Look at this difference here, 72% of Democrats versus 26%. That's not really surprising, even though it's a very, very drastic difference. After all, the Republicans' candidate won. A majority of people from both parties, however, 59% of Republicans and an even higher majority, 76% of Democrats, said they are stressed about the future of the country. So that's, again, almost 60% of Republicans, even though their candidate won the election. Dr. Wright suggests the best way to ease stress related to what's happening in Washington is to disentangle yourself from the minute-by-minute -minute deluge 
of negative news. There's so much to consume and internalize that people's hypervigilance is causing more harm than good. I could not possibly agree more. I've talked to many, many patients in my practice this year and the end of last year who are feeling very stressed about what is happening in the country and the level of political discourse. And sure enough, a lot of them are immersing themselves in news coverage and follow certain streams of information on social media, and it is causing them to have more anxiety and stress. And I have also counseled them to disengage from it, unfollow these certain streams on Facebook, for example, stop watching the TV news where these uh, negative ideas and events and upsetting and distressing stories are repeated over and over and over again. And then you have the panel of experts, the talking heads, screaming at you about it and screaming at each other about it. Uh, and it just keeps repeating over and over again. And if there's news audio or video clips, they're played over and over again. Um, I also think following the news on the Internet can be very stressful because uh, when you watch one video or read one article, immediately there's a link to the next one and so on and so forth, and it just keeps going without end. I know this is extremely old-fashioned, but I advocate print, reading the newspaper, you read the article, you know what happened, but then it's finished. It doesn't keep going over and over again, screaming it at you repeatedly. Uh, Dr. Wright goes on, it's not just about who won the election. It's having a much larger impact, and it likely has to do with this global sense of uncertainty, dividedness, and this unprecedented speed of change. She goes on to say, so we tried to seek out ways to control it, which is to be informed. And while it's really important to stay informed right now, there's a point where you have to know your limits. There's a saturation point where there isn't new information. Take, for example, the resignation of National Security Advisor Michael Flynn a week ago last Monday night. Most people didn't need that information at 11 p.m. Nothing would have changed if they'd waited until morning to hear that news. All it serves to do is to get you riled up again when you should be prioritizing at that time of the evening, going to sleep, winding down, preparing for the next day. Maintaining such high levels of constant stress puts a strain on your relationships, work, and your health, which then only increases the stress. It's a vicious cycle that people need to actively remove themselves by making a conscious choice to disengage and focus on friends, family, and activities that bring them joy. And finally, she says, know your limits. Really prioritize taking care of yourself. People think if I choose to cope or do something for myself, 
I'm saying what's happening isn't a big deal. But that's not true. The reality is if you burn yourself out by immersing yourself in these issues, then it's not going to help anyone, least of all yourself. So I agree with uh, her, again, uh, Dr. Vale Wright, a psychologist from the American Psychological Association's Stress in America team, uh, about limiting one's exposure, not engaging in these divisive issues to the point of agitation or burnout, to the point where it has a negative impact on your health, your work, and your relationships. Uh, we'll wrap this discussion up and have other mental health-related news after our first commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, 
your psychiatrist bringing you all the latest mental health related news. Uh, in our first segment, we were talking about how a psychologist from the American Psychological Association's Stress in America team advocates that people disengage and not immerse themselves in news coverage of uh, distressing events governing our political discourse nowadays. Now, I don't want you to get the impression that she or me secondarily are advocating that everyone just sort of disengage and hide from what's going on. Quite the contrary. That advice is directed to the people who are most vulnerable to becoming overwhelmed with stress by immersing themselves too much in these issues. Uh, no one is advocating that everyone sort of just put their head in the sand and ignore what's going on. But you have to know yourself, know your limits. If you feel yourself getting extremely stressed and agitated, if you count yourself among those statistics that uh, the American Psychological Association's survey found, uh, roughly two-thirds of people uh, have been in a lot of stress, and it has to do with what's going on in Washington and, and secondarily from there, then these are the people who need to limit themselves to how much they look at this uh, information and listen to it. Uh, let me give you some more concrete examples of special populations who just need to watch themselves and be careful with how much they're exposed to these types of things. I think broadly, in general, someone who suffers from a severe anxiety disorder probably should avoid watching anything on TV, news or otherwise, uh, that would potentially make them vulnerable to worsening their anxiety. And perhaps some people with uh, very difficult to manage mood disorders as well, people who are prone to depression or anger, for example. And uh, let me just give you some very specific, concrete examples of how, in uh, a common sense way, you can see why this is good advice. Okay, take, for example, someone who had lived through Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and the trauma we suffered from that. That person would have done well not to watch TV news coverage of uh, Hurricane or, or, or Storm uh, Sandy that devastated the Northeast several years ago. Likewise, uh, a Vietnam veteran who is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder from their time uh, serving in Vietnam would have done well not to watch TV coverage of things like the attacks on September 11 or news coverage of the wars um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I think that makes the point clearly. Uh, there are people who are especially vulnerable uh, to becoming more stressed when they look at disturbing events in the news. And even though those are two obvious, very concrete examples uh, certainly anyone can uh, have the anxiety from looking at these things affect their quality of life in a negative way to the point where we're just better off avoiding it.
Next on tonight's podcast, I would like to devote some attention to two articles about ADHD, which stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Again, there, the term ADD is no longer in proper use. It has not been for many years. It was changed to ADHD, and that includes inattentive-only type, which has no hyperactivity, just problems with attention, hyperactive-impulsive type, which is predominantly hyperactivity and impulsivity with minimal attention problems, and combined type ADHD, which includes features of both inattentiveness and hyperactivity plus impulsivity. There are a lot of people who simply are prejudiced about mental health issues, have their own strong but mistaken ideas uh, about what ADHD really is or what causes it, everything from accusing people with children with ADHD from not being good parents to claiming that ADHD does not in fact exist, that it's a conspiracy between psychiatrists and psychologists and drug companies to fabricate a fake disease uh, so that they can justify charging money to treat children with it and uh, the pharmaceutical companies can make profits selling drugs. Um, all of this is absolute nonsense from very ignorant people. Uh, sorry to be so blunt, but there's really no other way to put it. And, you know, if anyone has a problem with my saying that, uh, you certainly can choose not to listen to what I have to say. That's your privilege. Um, however, uh, one of the core missions for this podcast is to reduce the stigma about mental illness and to better inform the general public, and therefore I'm going to speak out when there are negative voices that would deny decades of science showing that ADHD is very real and it can be a devastating disorder that affects people for their entire lives. So this first article I want to tell you about is a major, major breakthrough showing brain differences in ADHD. Now, to be clear, brain imaging studies showing that there is something different about the structure of the brain in kids with ADHD versus kids without it, uh, thereby showing the reality that there is something going on physically in the brain uh, of someone with ADHD. This is not new. There have been other studies going back many years showing this. But this latest one clearly is the most sophisticated, and uh, it helps a lot that brain imaging technology has advanced so much. So the, and, and also this one is the largest imaging study of ADHD to date. It identifies differences in five different regions of the brain, with the greatest differences seen in children rather than in adults. Now, I'd have to look it up, and honestly, that would take a long time of research. But to my recollection, previous brain imaging studies that did show differences in the brains of children with ADHD versus those without 
only showed subtle differences in one or maybe two areas of the brain. So the fact that this imaging study found differences in five different areas is also uh, quite remarkable and a new and um, certainly uh, <clears throat> outstanding finding. Now, that attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is associated with the delayed development of five brain regions, that means it should be considered a brain disorder. And that um, the study was published in the journal The Lancet Psychiatry. Um, that's from the UK. That would be the equivalent of the Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry here in the United States. An extremely prestigious journal. And I think the conclusion there of the authors is correct. If you're seeing differences in five different brain areas, then in these kids, that means ADHD should be rightfully classified as a developmental brain disorder. Now, the study is the largest yet to look at the brain volumes of people with ADHD and it involved more than 3,200 people. This is another way in which this study differs so much from previous ones that I've read about. The large number of uh, people they scanned, uh, over 3,200. That's a very good sample. The authors say their findings could help improve understanding of the disorder and might be important in challenging mistaken beliefs, I will say, not just beliefs, but mistaken beliefs, that ADHD is a label for difficult children or the result of poor parenting. And that's another point. The article doesn't even talk about this, but um, I would like to mention too, I think news like this should let parents off the hook. Parents of children with ADHD who struggle in school, who struggle socially, who go on to struggle occupationally, they should let themselves off the hook now. No, it is not something you did wrong. It's a developmental delay. The one caveat I'll make to that is certainly there have been associations between smoking during pregnancy and development of ADHD. Okay, but, you know, barring anything like that as far as a direct negative health effect on the fetus, you know, the parents should, should say, well, it's not because we parented this child wrong, put this child in the wrong schools or whatever. This is something that happens during development of the brain. Now, the symptoms including inattention, and or hyperactivity and acting impulsively uh, affect more than 1 in 20 under 18-year-olds, 5.3%. And two-thirds of those diagnosed continue to experience symptoms as adults. That's an important point. Unfortunately, our own field of psychiatry decades ago used to propagate a different myth that somehow or another, when you go through adolescence, the ADHD disappears and doesn't affect you as an adult uh, to the point where doctors stopped giving older adolescents and adults medication 
And the pharmaceutical companies did not pursue getting the medications to treat ADHD approved for use in adult populations. We later learned that's not the case. And uh, as the article points out, almost two-thirds of those who were diagnosed with ADHD as kids continue to experience symptoms as adults. What happens in adults? It affects your job history, more divorces, more traffic tickets, more car accidents. All right, we're going to take another commercial break, continue our discussion. When we come back, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you're able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will likely continue to rise, while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We believe in taking care of the whole patient, because healing is more than writing a prescription. We are committed to working with you, and we specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage, and we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about an amazing study showing that brain scans of children with ADHD show differences in five different regions of their brains compared to children without ADHD. Previous studies have linked differences in brain volume with ADHD, but the small sample sizes means results have been inconclusive. Areas of the brain thought to be involved in ADHD are located in the basal ganglia. This is a part of the brain that controls emotion, voluntary movement, and cognition which means thinking and attention and memory. Research has previously found that the caudate and putamen regions within the basal ganglia are smaller in people with ADHD compared to those without it. This new international study measured differences in the brain structures of over 1,700 people 
with a diagnosis of ADHD and over 1,500 people without, all aged between 4 and 63 years old. All over 3,200 people had an MRI scan to measure their overall brain volume and the size of seven regions of the brain that were thought to be linked to ADHD, uh, not just the caudate and putamen, but also the pallidum, the thalamus, the nucleus accumbens, the amygdala, and the hippocampus. Uh, the pallidum is another structure in the basal ganglia. Thalamus is also in that region, and that is basically a major relay center for uh, sensory information, uh, <clears throat> which sends and receives information from all over the brain. The nucleus accumbens is basically our pleasure and reward center. Um, anything that is a powerfully strong stimulus, uh, that's where we'll feel it. Um, pleasure, reward, libido, reward from food, you name it, all goes through there. The amygdala is important for assigning emotional valence to uh, stimuli that is either stored or retrieved from memory. And the hippocampus is, uh, con has connections with the amygdala, and that is also involved in memory. That is a seahorse-shaped structure in the temporal lobe of the brain. <clears throat> the researchers also noted whether those with ADHD had ever taken psychostimulant medication, for example, Ritalin or Adderall or Focalin or Vyvanse or Concerta, what have you. The study found that overall brain volume and five of the regional volumes uh, were smaller in people with ADHD. And the five regions where they found smaller volumes of brain tissue in the brains of those with ADHD compared to the brains of those who didn't have it were the caudate, the putamen, the nucleus accumbens, the amygdala, and the hippocampus. Now, these differences are very small. Uh, the smaller volumes, it's in the range of just a few percent. So the unprecedented size of the study was crucial to help identify these small differences. But similar differences in brain volume are also seen in other psychiatric disorders, especially major depression. Um, you know, I'll also add there's been other research that has found differences in brain volumes in the hippocampus in particular, in depression and in post-traumatic stress disorder. The differences observed were most prominent in the brains of children with ADHD, but less obvious in adults with the, the disorder. Based on this, the researchers propose that ADHD is a disorder of the brain and suggest that delays in the development of several brain regions are characteristic of ADHD. Besides the caudate and putamen, for which previous studies have already shown links to ADHD, 
researchers were able to conclusively link the amygdala, nucleus accumbens, and hippocampus to ADHD. The researchers hypothesized that the amygdala is associated with ADHD through its role in regulating emotion, and the nucleus accumbens may be associated with the motivation and emotional problems in ADHD via its role in reward processing. The hippocampus's role in the disorder might act through its involvement in motivation and emotion. At the time of their MRI scan, the 455 research subjects with ADHD were, or actually 455 of the subjects with ADHD were receiving psychostimulant medication. And looking back further, 637 had had the medication in their lifetime. The different volumes of the five brain regions involved in ADHD were present whether or not people had taken medication, suggesting the differences in brain volumes are not a result of psychostimulants. Well, that's, I think, a very, very important point. Certainly, a lot of people have very strong feelings about treating ADHD with these admittedly very strong and dangerous drugs if they're not used properly, and you're giving this to young children in many cases. Um, but So it's, it's very interesting, if not quite reassuring, to learn in this research that the medications certainly are not uh, altering the structure of the brain. They are doing something to uh, change uh, the symptoms, certainly, to alleviate and relieve the symptoms, but not altering brain structure. The results from the study confirm that people with ADHD have differences in their brain structure and therefore suggest that ADHD is a disorder of the brain. And hopefully this will help to reduce the stigma that ADHD is just a label for difficult children or caused by poor parenting. Researchers say this is definitely not the case and they hope that this work will contribute to a better understanding of the disorder. I couldn't agree more. While the study included large numbers of people of all ages, its design means that it cannot determine how ADHD develops throughout life. Therefore, longitudinal studies, that means long-term, tracking people with ADHD from childhood to adulthood to see how brain differences change over time will be an important next step in the research. And this study is the largest one of its kind and well-powered to detect small effect sizes. Large sample sizes are particularly important in the study of ADHD because of the heterogeneity of the disorder both in what causes it and how it manifests itself. This study represents an important contribution by providing robust evidence to support the notion of ADHD as a brain disorder with substantial effects on the volumes of these five areas. 
future analyses will be required to investigate medication effects as well as the developmental course of these volume differences in these different parts of the brains of those with ADHD. So there you have it. The most conclusive proof to date that ADHD is a real disorder. It is a brain disorder. Now, in addition to evidence from MRI studies looking at structural differences in the brain, uh, there's also information about the genetics of ADHD. And the next article that we're going to talk about relates to that, working out what is the genetic risk for ADHD. Um, and really now we know a little bit more about what we're looking at. It's a genetic predisposition toward this uh, developmental brain disorder. Genetics play a strong part in the development of ADHD, but the path from a gene to risk from the disorder has remained a black box to researchers. A new study in the journal Biological Psychiatry suggests how the risk gene ADGRL3 might work. That gene encodes the protein latrophilin 3, which regulates communication between brain cells. According to the study, a common variation of the gene associated with ADHD disrupts its ability to regulate gene transcription, which is the formation of messenger RNA from DNA that leads to expression of the gene. <clears throat> it makes sense that uh, some subtype or variation of a gene that helps to regulate a protein that enhances communication between brain cells would result in ADHD symptoms, which makes it difficult to sustain one's attention uh, and uh, also, uh, you know, that would go along with keeping information going in a certain pathway in the brain without interruption. Now, evidence for this ADGRL3 gene in ADHD risk had already been stacked against it Common variants of the gene predispose people to ADHD and predict severity of the disorder. The study was done by the National Human Genome Research Institute in Bethesda, and it brings scientists closer to understanding how this gene contributes to risk by providing functional evidence that implicates a transcription factor in from the gene in the pathology of ADHD. Now, we'll uh, save for after our next commercial break to get into more details of how the gene works and how it may cause the symptoms of ADHD. And we'll, then we'll have other mental health news later in the podcast. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? 
and what is the best place to go for the care that is needed. We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about the latest research into the genetics of ADHD. The study is an effort to address limitations of existing ADHD medications that don't work for all patients and develop new medication targeting this protein encoded by the ADGRL3 gene that has been found to uh, increase the risk of ADHD. In this new era of genomics and precision medicine, uh, the use of genetic information to uh, determine best how to treat illness, the key to success lies in dissecting apart these genetic contributions involving some level of patient stratification. The researchers analyzed this gene in 838 people, 372 of whom were diagnosed with ADHD. Variants in one particular segment within the gene, the transcriptional enhancer ECR47, showed the highest association with ADHD and with other disorders that commonly occur alongside ADHD, such as disruptive behaviors and substance use disorder. Uh, What they're saying there is in the population with ADHD as a whole, uh, there is an increased tendency to see other illnesses that accompany it, such as the uh, disruptive disorders, such as uh, substance abuse disorders, People with ADHD are more prone to develop problems with substance abuse in adolescence and in adulthood. Uh, And interestingly, uh, those who were treated with psychostimulant medication for their ADHD in childhood and adolescence are less prone 
to problems uh, with substance abuse later in life, which is exactly the opposite of what those who are against the idea of using psychostimulants to treat ADHD would think. Now this transcriptional enhancer of the genes, ECR47, boosts the gene expression in the brain, but researchers found that a variation of it associated with ADHD disrupted its ability to bind an important neurodevelopmental transcription factor called YY1. And basically what all this amounts to is it's an indication that this risk variant interferes with gene transcription and therefore gene expression. In an analysis of postmortem human brain tissue from 137 control subjects, researchers also found an association between this ECR47 risk variant and reduced ADGRL3 expression in the thalamus. Uh, like I was saying before when we were talking about the previous study, that is a key brain region for coordinating sensory processing in the brain. And so the findings link this gene to a potential mechanism for the uh, pathophysiology of ADHD. Um, as the authors correctly point out, the brain is extraordinarily complex, yet they're starting to pull on the threads of that complex biology that reveal mechanisms through which disorders like ADHD might develop. In this case, <clears throat> the researchers help us to understand how variation in one particular gene might contribute to dysfunction in the thalamus in ADHD patients. Well, again, the just main take-home point, uh, biological evidence uh, of ADHD and underlying uh, pathophysiology beneath it, from genetic studies to structural MRI studies, uh, the evidence is overwhelming uh, that there is something developmentally going on wrong in the brain in people with ADHD, that there is a genetic component to it. Um, and to me, this just destroys any argument that it has to do with poor parenting or teaching. Um, I think it also pokes a major hole in an argument uh, that it has to do with poor nutrition or eating habits, although certainly eating better would help anyone function better cognitively, whether they have ADHD or not. All right, now it's already been a couple of weeks after, or, uh, well, you know, a week or, or more, or that should say, after Valentine's Day, but still, I found this other study about couples, married couples in particular, and some research from Carnegie Mellon University tells us that married people have lower levels of a certain stress hormone. And studies have previously suggested that married people are healthier than those who are single, divorced, or widowed, but this study provides the first biological evidence to explain how marriage impacts health. Published in the journal Psychoneuroendocrinology, 
the researchers found that married individuals had lower levels of the stress hormone cortisol than those who never married or were previously married. These findings support the belief that unmarried people face more psychological stress than married individuals. Prolonged stress is associated with increased levels of cortisol. That's the main stress hormone. You've heard me talk about it many times. It can interfere with the body's ability to regulate inflammation, which in turn promotes the development and progression of many diseases. Increased blood circulation of cortisol results in increased blood circulation of inflammatory proteins, which can damage multiple organs or cause lots of inflammatory-related diseases, including aggravating asthma, diabetes, and heart disease. <clears throat> now, a physiological pathway that may explain how relationships influence health and disease is a very exciting discovery. Over three non-consecutive days, researchers collected saliva samples from 572 healthy adults aged 21 to 55. Multiple samples were taken during each 24-hour period and tested for cortisol. The results showed that the married participants had lower cortisol levels than the never married or previously married people across the three-day period. The researchers also compared each person's daily cortisol rhythm, that is typically cortisol levels peak when a person wakes up and decline during the day. Those who were married showed a faster decline in cortisol levels, a pattern that has been associated with less heart disease and longer survival among cancer patients. These data provide important insight into the way in which our intimate social relationships can get under the skin to influence our health. Well, very interesting finding, but perhaps there are a couple of caveats. Um, the sample size, while substantial, is not very large, um, you know, less than 600 adults. And I can hear a lot of single, never married people out there complaining, what are you talking about? I'm not more stressed just because I'm single. So many of my married friends are so incredibly stressed about what's going on in their marriage. You mean to tell me that I'm still worse off because I'm single? You may have a point. Uh, I think in general, though, regardless of relational issues that obviously do come up in a marriage, there are advantages to having a partner. Ah, and speaking of that word, partner, um, it reminds me that the article doesn't mention anything about the nature of these married couples, um, other than most likely they're opposite-sex couples. Would the same findings apply to same-sex couples? Um, I would suspect they probably would. Uh, but again, to be thorough and to get as much information about the question uh, dealing, that the researchers dealing with as possible, uh, they should have included same-sex as well as opposite-sex couples. And then, of course, 
uh, spread this across different ethnicities and races and especially different socioeconomic income groups. Um, this is the only way to really make sure the information you're getting is boiled down to just biological differences between single and married people. Oh, and I forgot level of education. Uh, again, you want to control for all these other factors that may relate to how much stress someone is under and therefore what their cortisol levels are going to be. Still a very interesting finding. Again, uh, there's already a substantial body of research to show that married people in general have better health than single people. And this gives us an interesting insight into why that may be the case. Lastly tonight, something important for those of you who suffer from trichotillomania. Two brothers, recent University of Washington graduates, developed a chip-embedded bracelet designed to help people who compulsively and subconsciously pull their hair. It's called Slightly Robot, the name of the company. Matt Tolls and Joseph Tolls, brothers and recent University of Washington graduates, created a bracelet that tracks hand movement and vibrates when it goes somewhere it shouldn't. The bracelet is meant for people with trichotillomania, a disorder that can cause people to compulsively pull their hair. After a while, such movements become subconscious. Studies say up to 4% of the population has the condition. It can lead to serious cosmetic problems, such as bald spots in the scalp, losing eyebrows or eyelashes. Well, this device works this way. There's a small sensor embedded in a simple bracelet it tracks the wearer's hand position and can tell when that person pulls his or her hair. The motion is noted in a paired smartphone app, which also keeps track of how long the wearer has gone without hair pulling. There's learning over time. After a vibration, wearers can indicate on the app if they did indeed touch their hair. The bracelet learns more about each individual's hand motions over time. The bracelets are sold online for $90 if you're interested. Again, the company is slightly robot. That's going to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week. Until the next time we get together, but if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thank you very much for listening. You are listening to America's Web Radio, your voice in the matter.